reading at the reading of the, the word this day. We're going to do a little old school. I'm going to be preaching out of the King James Bible. Your ESV is based upon the King James, so it should be very close. This is an old Bible. This was a Bible that belonged to Mrs. King, Debbie Dehart's great-grandmother. And in 1969, April, Dr. Hall, at least he became Dr. Hall, preached out of this Bible um, on April 27th. That was 52 years ago. I was likely in the building when he preached this, and so I thought today I would bring this old Bible back in and preach out of it today here at Christ Reformed Church. And that was just a few blocks away from here. So we will uh, be looking at John chapter 5, verse 25. I'm going to have to brush up on my Elizabethan English here, starting in verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming. And now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, we have been making our way through this particular section of the discourse of Jesus. This is going to be one of the several discourses that we'll find in John that, that Jesus uh, speaks to the people here, particularly he is speaking to uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders in the temple. In verse 18, John tells us that the Jews sought to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their views of the Sabbath, but he also made himself to be equal with God. Now, in verses 19 through 47, Jesus gives us this long discourse, and rather than backing away from his claim to be equal with God, Jesus doubles down and confirms to the Jews that they understood him rightly, that he indeed is equal with God. And many of these Jews in the temple were from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish supreme court, and uh, some scholars believe that maybe Jesus was brought in before the Sanhedrin, before the supreme court. Now, he will later on, right before his death, be tried and convicted before the Sanhedrin. Later, Peter stood before the Sanhedrin, so did uh, some of the other apostles as well. And so, but there's no evidence here that Jesus was dragged in before the Sanhedrin. There's no ruling from them. And most likely, if he was before the Sanhedrin, they probably would sentence him to death right here, right, right now. But probably he was speaking in the temple before the Jews, and many of the uh, Sanhedrin 
which consisted of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, um, probably about 71, 70 plus 1, the high priest, and uh, we don't know how many were there, but many of them, I'm sure, were there. Among the, the, the folks, the Jewish leaders that were there were members of the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And in today's term, the Sadducees were the theological liberals. And the Pharisees, we would consider the theological conservatives. The Sadducees were the skeptics. They were influenced by, of course, Judaism, but more than that, they were influenced by Greek customs, by Greek philosophy during the period of the Greek uh, domination in that area. They were also cozy with the Romans as well. Um, they were like deists. Uh, they denied miracles. They denied the existence of angels. But their greatest claim to fame, or maybe infamy, is that they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied a final judgment, and they denied the possibility of eternal life. You almost have to question, well, what, what were they doing? <laughs> Why were they there? Why didn't they go find something else to do? But they were a ruling party. They had power, and so it probably came down to power and authority to them. So much like our modern-day materialists, they believed that when a person dies, they just cease to exist, fade to black. But Jesus comes along here and teaches the exact opposite of what they believe. And you'll see that he, he affirms those things they deny, even in this little section, but he does all throughout this section. Um, in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, we find that the Sadducees tried to trip Jesus up concerning the resurrection. They probably used one of their favorite little arguments or stories. I'm sure they've used it on many, many people, and it probably stumped everyone that they, they gave it to. So they decided to come up to Jesus and stump him with this little story. And you see this in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18, again out of the King James then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a brother dies, if a man's brother die, and leaves his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise, and the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, now they didn't believe in the resurrection, but this is a, this is a they're trying to stump him. When, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to, to wife. And Jesus answered, said unto them, answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err? Because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of 
God. For when they shall rise from the dead, so he affirms the resurrection of the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels, he affirms, angels, which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, they that rise, had ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Therefore, Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now, the issue was the Sadducees really only recognized the authority of the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. And their argument was that the Pentateuch did not teach anything like a resurrection or eternal life or anything like that. And what Jesus does here is he pulls from the Pentateuch the evidence that there is a resurrection, there is eternal life, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have been long dead, but God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living. They are still alive. Now, what about the rest of the Old Testament? Does the Old Testament teach that there will be a resurrection, that there is eternal life? This is not just a new doctrine that Jesus is teaching, is it? Well, in Job chapter 14, verse 14, this is the question that Job asks. If a man dies, shall he live again? That's a good question. And then he says, all the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. And then he says in chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, he says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What is that? That's the hope of the resurrection. Even though I die and the worms eat me, yet in my flesh, in my body, I shall stand upon the earth, and I shall see God in this body, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me, though the inward parts, though my guts, gizzards, kidneys, though they all be consumed in the grave, yet will I stand and see my God. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. When I'm raised from the dead. And Paul said that one day when we are raised, when we see him, we'll become just like him. This is exactly what the psalmist is asking. I will awake with thy likeness. Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death in victory. You can hear the Apostle Paul quoting this in the New Testament. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You can see this in Revelation. He'll wipe away the tears from our eyes. 
and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. And then in Isaiah 26, 19, the dead man shall live. There's a resurrection. The dead man shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Isaiah is affirming the resurrection of the dead. Those who die will not stay in that state. They will be raised from the dead. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Daniel says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now just keep that in mind as we go back to the words of Jesus. Jesus is saying almost the same thing here. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. That should be intriguing to us, isn't it? In our resurrected body, we will shine like the stars, reflecting the glory of God. I don't know what our body's going to be like. It's a glorified body, and it will reflect the glory of God, and it will shine with that reflection forever and ever. So the Old Testament anticipates the resurrection of the dead. What Jesus is teaching here is not new. It is grounded in Scripture. And so to understand our passage this morning, we need to understand that there are two kinds of resurrections. The Bible teaches two different kinds of resurrections. The first one is a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, and not everyone will experience this spiritual resurrection. This is the same thing that Jesus talked about in John chapter 3. You must be born again. That's the spiritual resurrection. So there is a spiritual resurrection. And secondly, there is a physical resurrection in our future that will raise from the dead everyone who has ever existed. Now that is going to be something to see, won't it? Everybody who has ever lived will be raised from the dead. Now in this section, Jesus is affirming both of these resurrections. So let's look at this. Number one, let's look at the spiritual resurrection found there in verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Again, this is the amen formula. Amen, amen. This is, this means that Jesus wants us to pay close attention to what he is saying here. The ESV says, truly, truly, I say to you. The King James here says, verily, verily, veritas, truth. So it means the same thing, truly, truly, or verily, verily. What this means what Jesus is getting ready to say is at uh, utmost importance that we need to pay attention. So he says, the hour is coming, but don't miss what he says next, and now is. An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear 
shall live. Now, Jesus is speaking here of a spiritual resurrection. When he says the hour is coming and now is, he means that this resurrection of the dead, the spiritual dead, has already begun. It's already started. So we know that the resurrection from the dead will happen at the very end. We're still waiting for the physical resurrection, but the, but the spiritual resurrection is already happening. It was started right there as Jesus was talking, as Jesus was carrying out his ministry. The dead, the spiritually dead, were coming back to life. So what is this resurrection in Jesus' time? Well, in, in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve that the day they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, they would die. Now, after they ate, they did not drop dead physically, but they began to die physically. The process of dying began, but they did die spiritually that day. They were cut off from God. Before, they had fellowship with God. They could see God. They could walk with God. After that, they were cut off from God. They were cut off from a relationship with their creator. They became spiritually dead. And this is why Paul describes our spiritual condition as one of being dead. We are born this way. We are born spiritually dead because we are all in Adam. And in Adam, we all die, Paul says. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, And you hath he quickened, this is King James again, but who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. He's telling the Ephesian Christians. At one time, you were dead spiritually. And then in verse 5, he says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And what, what he's saying here is even though you were dead, God has made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. It wasn't us. It wasn't our power or our might. It was God that makes us alive. What, what does God do here? He raises us from the dead spiritually. He gives us new life. And so we were once dead spiritually, but now God has made us alive. He has raised us from the dead. So how is a person spiritually raised from the dead? What, what is the process here? Look at verse 25 of John chapter 5. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. So to be raised from the dead is to be able to hear the voice of the Son of God. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will live. Again, this reminds us of Isaiah 55. In fact, chapters 4, 5, and 6 reminds us of Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Isaiah says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Doesn't that remind you of the woman at the well? Living water. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Come, uh, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he says, Wherefore be ye, 
ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. So we'll see in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then Isaiah says, incline your ear, listen, and come unto me, hear, Isaiah says, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. What is Isaiah saying? Same thing Jesus is saying. The dead will hear the voice. If you hear his voice, you will live. You will live. And you are being called by the voice of Christ to salvation without cost, without money. So if we are listening to the voice of Jesus, that's how we shall live, by hearing the voice of Jesus. What is Jesus saying? What would we hear as we hear the voice of Jesus? Well, if we hear the voice of Jesus, we'll hear him preaching the gospel to us. When Jesus began his ministry, what did he do? He said, repent for the kingdom of God draws nigh. He was sent to preach the good news, the gospel, to the world. And what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that the Son of God came down to die on the cross for our sins. And he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. And if you would believe in him and what Christ has done for us on the cross, you will live. You will live. Now, if you hear his voice, you will be raised from the dead and he will give them eternal life. This is what Jesus has been saying all along. If you look at John chapter 3 verse 15, what does Jesus say? Whoever believes in him, that is in Christ, may have eternal life. Then John 3.16, everybody knows this one, right? This is Jesus speaking. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 4.14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or John 3.36, I skipped that one. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 4.36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. He's speaking of the Samaritans. The, time, the hour is coming and is now here that people are hearing the voice of the Son and they are being given eternal life. Now, isn't that interesting? And people think that the Bible and church is boring. What Christ is offering each one of us is 
could live forever. Wherever. That's the promise. That's what salvation means. That's what being born again means. To live forever. To never die again. Now in John chapter 5, again verse 24, that's what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believe on him that sent me hath everlasting life. They already have it. They don't have to wait till later. If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life now. It begins now. And shall not, he says, come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Later in John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Who hears the voice of Christ? His sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. Over and over again, Jesus tells us what he is about, what he's come to do. And if we believe in him, we will be given eternal life, contrary to what the Sadducees believe, contrary to what many people believe today, that if you just die, then there's nothing afterwards. You just fade to black. You just die, and nothing's left. That is contrary not only to the prophets and to the Word of God, it's contrary to, to, to what Jesus taught. That there is life after death. There is eternal life. Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life. This is in John chapter 10, verse 28. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which give, gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, I and my Father are one, which is exactly what he is saying here in this particular passage. He's helping the Jews to understand that he and the Father are one. So over and over again, Jesus is speaking. He is proclaiming the gospel of salvation. And he plainly tells that if anyone would believe in him, trust in him, that they will be given eternal life. This was not only true in Jesus' time, it's still true today. It's been true for the last 2,000 years that if you place your faith in Christ and believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. So if anyone hears his voice today, you say, how do you hear his voice? Well, through the gospel, through the proclamation. He is speaking even now through his word to his people. He is speaking to his sheep, to his people. If you would believe in him and trust in him, you will have everlasting life. And they will be raised if you believe even today you will be raised spiritually from the dead. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for some future time. Today, right now, you can be raised spiritually from the dead by trusting in Christ. Now, how do you know if you've been raised spiritually from the dead? Now, you may not remember the day of your salvation. A lot of people don't. I know that there are those who suggest that if you can't remember the, the exact moment of your salvation, you're probably, you've probably never been saved. But what happens if you grew up in a Christian home? <laughs> you've always been taught that. You've always believed 
right? As far as you know and you remember, there was a time when you passed from death to life, but you have no clue when that point was. So how do you know? How do you know if you truly have been born again? Well, Jesus is going to suggest some things here in a moment, and we'll, we'll see this. But if you are alive, then you should be doing what live people do. You don't expect anybody in the graveyard to do anything but just lay there, right? They're dead, and they do what dead people do, nothing. But if you are alive, if you have been raised spiritually from the dead, then there should be evidence of your spiritual resurrection. There should be life there. So how do we know? Well, um, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your salvation, for, number one, do you trust in him? Is there faith? Are you believing and trusting in Christ for everlasting life? Are you believing in him? The second thing is, and this comes from various passages in Scripture, is there spiritual life or what you would call spiritual fruit coming out of your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control that we see in Galatians. Is there spiritual fruit John in 1 John, the same apostle here that's writing here in his epistle, in 1 John, he gives us a series of tests to know if you have life or not. And you can read through that, but one of them is, do you desire to walk in the light? If, if you say that you know God and you are still walking in darkness, that is, you still love sin and you still love to participate in sinful deeds, and there's no repentance, if you still love the darkness or are still walking in the darkness, then you do not know God. A, a person who is living and who has spiritual life will seek to turn from sin. Not that we won't be free from sin, but we'll continually live in repentance, and we'll continue to fight against our sin, but we cannot stay in a state of continual sin and unrepentance if you have life. So, John also says, do you have love for other believers? That's when John says, if you say that you love God and yet hate your brother, how can the love of God abide in you? Do you love other Christians, other believers, do you desire fellowship with other believers? Because if you hate other believers and hate the church, um, then the love of God does not abide in you, according to John. Do we desire to worship him? How many people today say that they believe in God and yet they don't even bother to get out of bed on Sunday morning? There can't be life there if there's no desire to worship God. What is A part of our worship is thanking God for his grace and mercy on us. And you know what? If you've never been shown grace and mercy from God, then you won't desire to worship him and thank him for it. There'll be no motivation to come with God's people to worship God on Sunday morning. The other question is, do we love this world? Do we love the things of the world? 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Or do we love Christ? Do we love his word? Do you, do you read it? Amazing how many Christians don't even take the time to read the Word of God or listen to it week by week. Don't even read it or listen to it. But one of the one of the things that David taught us in the Psalms that if we love God, we will love His Word. We will delight in it. We will love the preaching of His Word. That's why we do this. The world doesn't understand that. They just think, this is boring because it's not a it, it's not a big performance with all kinds of lights and videos and all of this this is the this is the word but this is the word of god and the people of god love the word of god and they love it when it's taught and preached and proclaimed so do you love the preaching of the word do you love the word and the other thing is, do you desire to see other people come into the kingdom? If you have been forgiven and have been shown mercy, then our next reaction should be, we want other people to know God's mercy and forgiveness. If you've been shown mercy, then we should love our neighbor and have compassion on others enough that we want them to know this grace and forgiveness too. So do we share the gospel with people? That's, that's so important. The people... Know the gospel, the ones that you are around? Do they, have they ever heard the gospel? Or maybe they've never had ex explained to them. Maybe that's something that we can do. But all of this is the fruit of good works, the fruit of a genuine faith. This is what being alive looks like. And there, there's much more. These are just some of the things that the Scripture helps us to understand. Now, these are not works that we try to muster up to do so that we deserve salvation. These, this is fruit. This is because of our faith. This will be the outflowing of our life. The, the desires of our heart will change if we're truly alive. Now, look in verse 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, Jesus can give life to others. Because he has life in himself. Now, if he were not God, that would be preposterous. <laughs> Can you say that? That you have life in yourself? That life is in you? Um, that you stand alone? This, this can only be said of God. Now, it can't be said of us because we are, to use the language of philosophy, we are contingent beings. Our existence is contingent upon someone else. I'm only here because my mom and dad, right? My mom's here. And they're only here because they're mom and dad. And they're only there because they're, you see, it goes all the way back to Adam. And Adam and Eve were only there because God created them. No human being has life in himself except for the God-man, Jesus Christ. He has life in himself. He is a necessary being. And God does not depend on anything else for his existence. And Jesus is affirming that Jesus does not depend on anything else for his existence. He has life in himself. 
Now, what's interesting is that Jesus says that the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, this could be a reference to the fact that Christ is the eternal begotten Son of God. That's a very difficult thing to wrap your mind around, that he was not created. He's always existed, and yet he is the begotten of the Father. But this also could be a reference to the idea that the Father has granted the incarnate Son of God the power and authority to give life whomever he wishes. Now, now think about this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us that the incarnate Christ emptied. This is the kenosis. He emptied himself, even though he was God and he did not think it would be robbery of God to be equal with God. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So what the Son of God did is he came out of heaven, was born into a human being, and he took on the form of the servant. That meaning that as a servant, he, he, he only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. He was the servant of the Lord. So some of the prerogatives of, his, uh, of him being God, he did not use all of it. There are times when Jesus didn't know when the end would come. He said, the angels don't only, only my father knows. Now, now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, I would assure you that Jesus knows the timing. But in his incarnate, while he, incarnation, while he was walking on this earth, there's things that he knew and things that he didn't know. Things that the, God sh- that the father showed him and gave to him. Things that the father did not show him or give to him. He relied completely on his father. But in this case... Jesus, being both God and man on this earth, the Father granted to him that he could give life to whomever. It, not only that, he, he, could, he, could, he has life within himself and give life to whomever he wills. Later, we're going to see this when he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus spoke. Jesus said Lazarus because he had the power to do that, the authority to do that. So Jesus has the power to spiritually raise people from the dead, which brings us to the second point, and that is the physical resurrection. We see this in John chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. In 27, he says, and hath given him authority. So God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 where the son of man was given an everlasting kingdom, right? So this is, this is him affirming that he is the Messiah sent from God. And it says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. Notice he doesn't say, and he is now here on this one. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. It's still in the future, and it's still yet in our future. An hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Everyone. 
Now, that doesn't mean all who are in the graves. What about people who died at sea, <laughs> you know, that were never given a proper burial? It, it covers everybody. Everyone who has died, everyone who has ever lived, all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, Jesus says. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I love that King James word. <laughs> damnation, hell, eternal punishment. So Jesus here is talking about, the, about judgment and people coming out of their graves. He is referring here to the physical resurrection that is still yet in our future. There is a physical resurrection to come. And when the physical resurrection occurs, it will be followed by the last judgment, the final judgment. That's why Jesus is talking about judgment and resurrection. They go together. So in the end, sometime yet in our future, we don't know when that will be, but sometime in our future, Christ, because he has the power and authority to raise the dead, to give life, Christ will call everyone out of the graves. You say, well, how does he, what about all the atoms? How does he, I mean, all the, you know, this molecule was probably in that person and then in that person and now it's in a fish and then in a dog and now it's in a tree how, how, let me ask you if, if the god who spoke in an instant and created the heavens and the earth is it going to be too hard for him to raise the dead no simple easy for him <laughs> Christ has the power, he has the power to give life, and he says that one day I will raise everyone out of the grave. Everyone who has ever lived will come back to life again. And he will be their final judge. He will be the judge, because all judgment has been given to him. So on that day, everyone who has ever lived, that's going to be fascinating, won't it? Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Isaiah, Nebuchadnezzar. That'll be interesting to see if he was really saved. He wrote, what, the fourth chapter of Daniel? Not only that, Homer, Socrates. I wonder if he'll have any questions. <laughs> We know at that moment he will not be the wisest man on the earth. Plato. When he sees it, don't know what's going to happen to him. But when he sees it, he says, man, that was just right on the tip of my tongue. This is what I was trying to see. Aristotle. Alexander the Great. great warrior king who conquered the world is going to stand before the true conqueror of the world. Tiglath-Pileser. Wow. He's got some things to answer for. All of the Caesars, Julius Caesar, 
Augustus, all the world dictators. It's not going to go well for Hitler that day, but he'll be there. Mussolini, Stalin, everyone who has ever lived will be raised. They will be there that day. And they will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. They will stand before their judge because all judgment has been given to him. Everyone who is ever born will be given a resurrected body. You see, we may not have realized this, but once we are born and human, made in the image of God, we will exist forever. We will exist forever. The question is, where? Everyone will have a resurrected body, but where will it be? They will stand before Jesus. John 5, 22, we saw this last week. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And in verse 27, and hath given him authority to exercise judgment also because he is the Son of Man. And again, we looked at this last week, but it's, we need to see this again. Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a picture of that day when he raises the dead and, and begins to judge everyone. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, he's talking about that future glory, and all the holy angels with him. Sorry, Sadducees, he's affirming the existence of angels. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall gather all nations, all the dead, everyone will be gathered before him, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Everyone will be raised, but some will be put on his left side, some will be put on his right. He will separate people like sheep and goats. The sheep will be on his right hand, the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say, when I was hungry you fed me, right? All of those things that, that sound like work salvation, but it's not at all. We'll explain this here in a second. In verse 41, it says, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the last judgment. Jesus will be the final judge, and he will determine who goes to heaven. And who goes to hell? All judgment has been given to him. So look at verse 28 and 29 of John chapter 5. This is what he's saying here. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Again, it sounds like a work salvation if you 
if I, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. You know, it's 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 the same thing. Those who've done have done good, resurrection of life. Those who've done evil, resurrection of damnation. So it does sound like a works-based salvation. You can't fault some people if they misunderstand that. Think that their good works, if their good works outweigh their bad works, they'll be saved. It's not as if good works and bad works don't have anything to do with it. But we're not saved by our works. We're saved for good works, right? You can't really tell whether someone has a genuine faith or not just by looking into their heart. Do they have a real faith or not? No, the way that you tell whether they have a real faith or not if if they have good works that flow out of that faith. Andreas, Andreas uh, Kalsenberger comments like this. He says, because believing often proves superficial, a person is to be judged by what he or she does, not merely says. This does not amount to salvation by works. Rather, the life that one lives forms the test of the faith they profess. In other words, what James says in the book of James Faith without works is dead. Meaning, if you don't have good works, helping your brother, feeding the poor, doing good deeds, if you don't have good works that flows out of a genuine faith, your faith is dead, meaning it is not a saving faith. Our faith should be shown by our good works, by our deeds. And that's why the judgment is by based on what we do, because if we have a genuine faith, we will do good. If we don't, we will do evil. But the point is that everyone will be raised, but not everyone will be eternally saved. There will be sheep, there will be goats. Some will be given eternal life, others will face eternal judgment. But everyone will live forever in a resurrected body. The sheep will have a resurrected body fit for heaven. The goats will have a resurrected body fit for hell. But the point is, Christ has the power in himself to give life and to raise the dead and to judge. And he will render the final judgment. So let's put this all together. Everyone who is raised spiritually from the dead, that's the first resurrection. If you're raised spiritually, if you are born again, if you believe in Christ, you are a part of the first resurrection. Being The only way to go to heaven is that you have to be a part of both resurrections, right? The first resurrection is being raised spiritually from the dead. The second resurrection is to be raised for eternal life. Revelation 26 kind of makes sense of this, right? Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. You are blessed if you are part of the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Meaning, if you're a part of the first resurrection, you are blessed because you have eternal life. Because he's raised you from the dead spiritually. And you will not be judged and face eternal damnation. So the question is, are you a part of this first resurrection? 
It's happening now. It's happening all over the world. People are hearing the voice of Christ. They're hearing the gospel and believing. Christ is making them alive. Christ has made many of us alive by hearing the gospel and believing. We have placed our faith in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But for others who have not placed their faith in Christ, maybe they're waiting. Maybe they say, well, one day I will believe. Maybe I'll trust in him. But one day may be too late, right? And people will either die in their sins because they never completely trusted in Christ. I mean, do you know when you're going to die? You have no clue, do you? Do you know when Christ will return? We don't have a clue. So that means that the time to believe and trust in Christ is not some future time. The time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time, Scripture says. So if you delay in trusting in Christ, you will not get another chance, possibly. So there is an urgency about this, and there should be an urgency in our voice when we're telling others about this. All eternity, heaven and hell is hanging in the balance here, and it's based upon what we do with Christ, trusting in him or rejecting him. I close with this. We often hear these words of C.S. Lewis cited, but hearing Jesus' claim to be God and all judgment is left with him. Um, these words of Lewis seem very appropriate here. Lewis writes, In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any character in history. You must make your choice, he says. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. My prayer is that we will all do the latter.